And then the following week, we look at the next portion of Scripture as we seek to go through the Bible, allowing the Bible to speak for itself so that we can hear not the word of man, but the word of God. We do this week after week, and uh, we believe that this, as we just sang, this is what builds the church. It is the word of God proclaimed. The church is built upon the proclamation of the word of God. So our text today, picking up the second half of verse 6 of Mark 6. As he went about among many villages teaching, and he went about among many villages teaching, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over their unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from it. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Boaz and I love to watch documentaries together. Uh, recently, we were watching a documentary on the peregrine, peregrine falcon, well, the fastest bird in the air. Well, Boaz was watching the documentary while I napped for most of it, but I caught enough of the documentary to see how amazing the process of maturing of these birds was. Because of how comfortable these birds feel with great heights, they often feel very comfortable and adjust very well to cities with high buildings. So part of this documentary was filmed in the window of an apartment in Chicago. Early on, we could see the development of the little chick's life and they were completely dependent on their parents for food, protection, and provision. The little eagles, or the little falcons, never leave their nest for anything. But all this changes as soon as their wings are just ready to sustain flight. And the peace and calm that they've experienced for the first part of their lives comes to a halt. When the birds are barely mature enough to flap their wings, their parents push them out of the nest. And they have now only two options. Fly or die. But why? Why take such risk? Why put your little ones in such perilous ways? Because flying is so vital for birds that the risk of not learning how to fly is greater than the risk of plummeting down a tall Chicago skyscraper. And this, friends, is exactly what Jesus does to his disciples in our text for today. Taking on the mission of Jesus is a vital aspect of the lives of the disciples of Jesus. It is greater, it is of more risk for us to stay in our discipleship nest. 
than to be pushed out of our nest and learn how to fly the flights of missions. This was true of the original 12. This is true of you and true of me. Which today comes to a great shift in the Gospel of Mark. The disciples have been at best a supporting cast so far. We haven't heard much from them. They have not taken much initiative. And when they have, they've been wrong. They have not always been models of faith and virtue throughout the Gospel of Mark. But today, Jesus shifts the spotlight on them. Now, Mark has been telling us from the very beginning of the Gospel that this moment was coming. Back in chapter 1, as Jesus calls Simon and Andrew, the first two disciples, he tells them, follow me. And then he tells them the purpose. For I will make you become fishers of men. In the same way, in chapter 1, he calls James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who immediately leave everything behind and follow them. Later on in chapter 2, we see a different calling, the calling of Levi, the unlikely disciple. He was not a fisherman. He was a tax collector. He was the epitome of a sinner, turned against his own people in order to oppress them. And yet Jesus calls him, and what does he do? Levi leaves everything behind and follows Christ. In chapter 3, we see the final list of the twelve who are also known as the apostles. We hear they are Simon, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas. Mark tells us that he calls them and says to them that they must follow Christ so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So what we see in our text today is the fulfillment of what Jesus had told the disciples from the very beginning of their walk together. Now it's time to push the chicks out of the nest. It's time for the disciples to take on ministry. But are they ready? And the answer is no. No. So far they have shown fear weak faith, frailty? Well, the answer is also yes. Because in the midst of their weakness, they've also shown a willingness to follow Christ. And friends, Christian ministry is for the fearful, for the weak, for the one who struggles with his or her faith, for the frail, as long as they're willing to follow Christ. So as we study our text for today, we're going to see three words that are going to guide us through our text as we consider Jesus' instruction for his disciples as he prepares them to the work of ministry. We're going to see the word authority, then we're going to see the word dependence, and then finally we're going to see the word 
proclamation. Authority, dependence, and proclamation. So first, let's consider authority. At the end of verse 6 that we left off last week, we read that Jesus went around the villages teaching. This is the third time Jesus does this. He did that in the beginning of chapter 1. He did that again at the end of chapter 1. Now the third time he goes through the region of Galilee, visiting towns and villages, proclaiming the gospel. But this time, not only does Jesus go on his tour, not only does he go on a mission, he also commissions his disciples to do the same. Even Jesus himself knew that the work of the gospel involved more than just himself. The work of the gospel involves all believers. We all receive this commission. Jesus, speaking to his disciples in the gospel of John, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. So there's an implication here of faith and discipleship. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Meaning, the empowerment of the Spirit will be great. So great that the works we were to, we were to see were greater than the works of Christ himself. Part of Jesus' mission on earth was to equip his disciples to carry on the work he began. Now, there are three verbs here in verse 7 that help us understand this commissioning better. The verbs are call, send, and give. Call, send, and give. Jesus calls to himself those he desires. That's the language he uses back in chapter 13, verse 13. He called the disciples to himself because he desired them. That's always what initiates the call of Jesus to the sinner. It is his desire to impart holiness. There's no ministry that can be done without the initial call to Christ. We come to Christ first. Often uh, in ministry, I've had people come up to me and say, do you need me to do anything? Friends, we don't need anything. We need Christ. We want to do ministry, but it is Christ that we need. The call to ministry is first and foremost a call to sit at the feet of Jesus. In other words, you are right now at the heart of ministry. Because the word that is being proclaimed is the word of Christ himself. We're called to come to Jesus, to learn from him, to love him, and to imitate him no one can do great works for christ unless they first learn the greatness of christ but not only does christ call to himself those whom he desires jesus also sends those whom he disciples if you come to christ you know that you also experience the sending of christ jesus sends them out his disciples two by two certainly jesus knew He's very familiarized with the verse in Ecclesiastes that says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Jesus also knew that in the Jewish culture, 
a report should be received on the accounts of two witnesses. And these men were sharing the most important report one could share. Friend, the purpose of discipleship is not self-seeking. The purpose of coming to Christ is not primarily for ourselves. Discipleship is never about finding comfort. We don't look for a church because we feel good there, but because we find purpose there. And the purpose of discipleship is always about the glory of Christ and the expansion of His kingdom. Discipleship is about sending, not staying. Some of these disciples one day found themselves, later on in Jesus' ministry, in a heavenly experience with Christ. Christ became transfigured and was seen talking with Moses and Elijah. This was a vision of Jesus in his transformed Body. In other words, this was a vision, a foretaste of the future resurrection. The time was not yet to rest on that. But Peter, who was there among James and John, suggested, Rabbi, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now that sounds like a good idea except that Mark doesn't think it is, because he says that Peter said these things not out of wisdom. But he said these things, for he didn't know what to say, for he was terrified. Clearly, not a good idea. The ministry, friends, that we exercise today is not a ministry of staying. It's not a ministry of saying, Jesus is here, let us stay here. The ministry that we experience today is a ministry of, Jesus is here, let us proclaim him. He didn't know what he was saying, so he said something. That's always a bad idea. He was wrong. This age we experience, we experience of Jesus so that we can tell others of his glory and majesty. The time to rest in the presence of the resurrected Christ will come. But it is not yet. So Jesus calls, Jesus sends, but Jesus also gives. Jesus gives authority to those he commissions. Ministry is impossible without authority. Authority are the tools that we need to accomplish that which God has called us to do. And Jesus gives authority to his disciples to continue destroying the works of the devil. To continue the mission he set out to accomplish. We, we had this read earlier today in our service, the Great Commission. Now we know the Great Commission, right? Go therefore. But did you notice that we started the reading a little bit earlier? Because the context of the Great Commission is the context of the authority that Christ has accomplished. The authority that he has received. Did you hear this? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. That's ministry. That's the foundation of the Great Commission. The authority that Jesus has been given. That authority 
He transfers to us. Therefore, we go. We can see this very clearly in our local church, can't we? I personally have no intrinsic authority over you. But the day you called me to be your pastor, you endowed me with authority to exercise oversight over your lives. It is impossible to do ministry without authority. But you yourselves also have no intrinsic authority over spiritual matters. But Jesus has endowed you with authority to declare the heavenly realities on earth. So you called me. It is impossible to accomplish the work of ministry without the authority that comes from Christ. But authority must be met with humility. And this is why Jesus goes on to explain to his disciples that they were going to have to learn to depend on God for ministry. Let's consider now dependence. Ministry is always done through the authority that Jesus supplies. We need to hear this as a constant reminder because we often buy into the lie that we must be strong in order to accomplish the work that Jesus has called us to accomplish. That is not true. We're not qualified because of our abilities, eloquence, or training. Our qualification for ministry comes simply by the fact that Jesus has called us to work on his behalf. An ambassador is only as strong as the country that commissions it. A messenger only has strength according to the message that he carries. Look at verse 8. He charges them to take nothing in their journey except a staff. And, and this would be a walking staff, not a staff even for self-defense. No bread, no bag, no money. They would have to rely on God for their, for their daily sustenance. It is interesting, the mentioning of a bag here. This would be a bag that often preachers, prophets would carry around in order to receive a tip or a donation for their ministry. And yet, they're not allowed to do that. I, I imagine... What money-hungry Judas Iscariots thought of this idea. Jesus says, however, you, Jesus says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Jesus was telling his disciples that at the heart of ministry, there is a daily dependence on the provision that comes from God. Friends, if you want to be used by God, you have to live in light of this principle. If you want to ministry, minister for God, you will have to live in light of your utter dependence on Him. 
But here's the good news. Ephesians 4 and 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ. If we choose to, if, if you choose to live your life for the glory of God, God will not supply some of your needs. God will not supply most of your needs. What Paul tells us here is that if you live for Christ, Christ will supply all of your needs. King David, who at times was hungry, who at times was homeless, who at times was at the brink of death, once said, I have been young and I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. You know, sometimes we think that the best parallel for ministry and our dependence unto God is the dependence of a child unto a parent. And, and there's truth to that, right? If you've ever, if, if you've parented, you know that children are utterly dependent. Um, but sometimes they're not so. They grow out of that, right? But I love the picture that we had read earlier to us in John 15. The picture is not of a child that depends on a parent. The picture is of a vine that depends on a vine dresser. How dependent are plants on those who care for them? How much work do plants do to care for themselves? You know, I, I was talking to someone this week, I can't remember who it was, but somebody told me that they managed to kill a cactus. Okay, now it takes work to kill a cactus. Whoever it was that I was talking to, just remind me later, uh, how it takes a lot of work to kill a cactus, right? Uh, but even a cactus is dependent on proper care. Friends, our dependence on God is like the dependence of a plant on the one who cares for that plant. We do nothing. What is the plant called to do in John 15? Abide. Hold on. Depend. There's nothing you can do. But if you hold on to me, you will bear much fruit. So how much confidence should we have in ourselves for the work of ministry? We should have the confidence of a plant. We should have the confidence of a vine that is completely dependent on the vine dresser. Ministry requires dependence on God, and dependence on God requires faith. But here's what is beautiful about this. When we do things by faith, we do things that are greater than us. Jesus is here teaching his disciples that the kingdom of God is greater than them, and his purposes, for, uh, his purposes will only be accomplished if they learn to, by faith, depend on God. Friends, we're not trying to build a kingdom of this world. We are building a kingdom of God, and yet we so often think that we need things of this world in order to accomplish the kingdom of God. We think that we're hamstrung by our budget, our building, 
our production, our preacher. Our ability to minister here is not dependent on the degrees we hold or on the beauty of our building or on the size of our production or how large our budget is. Our ministry is empowered by our faith and dependence in the God who owns all things. This is what Jesus is teaching his disciple. Central Baptist Church, this is what we need to hear. Strong people make for weak ministries. But a strong ministry is built on weak people who depend on God. Our weaknesses are often the very thing that God uses to accomplish His purposes. When we give ourselves to God for, him, his, for his ministry, He will first revoke every ounce of confidence we have in ourselves. And He will teach us that ministry can only be done if we find our boast in Christ and in Christ alone. This is good news. Christianity is indeed for the faint of heart. Gospel-centered living enables us not to be ashamed or embarrassed of our weaknesses, but instead to use our weaknesses for the good of others and for the glory of God. If our ministry is built on our weakness that leads us to faith, we will bear much fruit. But if we think much of ourselves, we will bear no fruit. So realize this, the Lord has called you to live for Him. The Lord has called you to a specific ministry. And it is not your strength that will ensure success in fulfilling your calling. No, it is the grace of God working through your weaknesses. Do you ever feel tempted to think that a certain ministry depends on you? Do you ever feel tempted to think that this church in any way depends on you? Do you ever feel tempted to think anything concerning the kingdom of God only takes place because of you? No, friends, the kingdom of God is made up of replaceable people. All of us are replaceable. None of it depends on us. Everything in the kingdom of God depends on Christ, and we depend on Him too. There's one, one more aspect of depending on God that I want to bring to your attention today. When we depend on God, we must be ready to receive opposition. You see that in our text right in front of us. As I was preparing the sermon, I initially intended to leave this point of opposition as a standalone alone point. But as I studied, I came to realize that if we need to depend on God in light of anything, it is in light of opposition. Jesus tells His disciples that if in any place, or if any place will not receive them, or if they will not listen to them, when they leave, they should shake off the dust that is on their feet as a testimony against them. In other words, Jesus is telling his disciples 
that they will come to some places where they will not be well received. You've been in ministry for any length of time. You've experienced this. His disciples would come to a place where they would not receive or hear the message of the gospel. Jesus' instruction to them was to shake off the dust as a picture of judgment. So in ministry, we are to expect opposition. It is not a coincidence that the section right before our passage for today tells us of Jesus' own experience with opposition. He came to Nazareth, to his own hometown, and his own people met him with disdain. Thus far, we have seen Jesus rejected by the religious authority. We saw him rejected after he delivered the gathering demoniac from his demons. We've heard of a plot between the Pharisees and the Herodians to kill him. What Jesus is preparing his disciples to endure is nothing short of what Jesus himself experienced. Opposition will come. And it will come in many ways. Opposition can come in evident ways like outward persecution, societal opposition. Just in the past couple of weeks, First Baptist Church of Jacksonville has asked its members to affirm a statement they added to their guiding documents on biblical sexuality. Nothing that is not utterly clear and has been utterly clear for millennia in the Bible. And the backlash that they have received from the culture and the media has been austere. Pray for First Baptist Church of Jacksonville. And we're going to see more of this next week. But sometimes opposition will come in the more subtle way of gossip, of unfounded criticism. And although this may seem smaller and harmless, these are way more dangerous. Because gossip and unfounded criticism can live under cover, under the guise of let us pray for someone. These things can live in a church and go unnoticed, unnoticed creating problems, discouragement, even division. But whatever opposition we may face, we're not to take opposition personally. Why? Because it is not us that the world rejects. It is Christ himself. Jesus instructs his disciples. If you're met by opposition, shake off the dust. Walk away. Find the next door. I have a friend who every Sunday afternoon goes knocking on doors to evangelize. And uh, I went with him once when we lived back in Louisville. And he told me, brother, we're going to find a lot of rejection here. But whenever you see a door that shuts in your face, just know that the Lord is leading us to those that he's calling to himself. And when we find them, they will come to faith. 
Friends, that's what Jesus is instructing his disciples. Those that do not receive my message, shake off the dust, walk away, knock on the next door. It is not you, if you're ministering for Christ, who is rejected. It is Christ himself. When Israel wanted to have a human king over them, just like the other nations, the prophet Samuel became discouraged with the people. So God said to him, Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And this is encouraging because we know that we're mere representatives of God. If we are accepted by God, what does it matter that the world may reject us? But at the same time, this should break our hearts. We shouldn't find no rest in rejection because nothing is worse than the reject rejection of Christ. Nothing is more dangerous for the soul of man than to reject Christ himself. So though we know we'll be rejected, we must Proclaim Christ with power. We turn to our last point for today. Proclamation of Christ. The goal of discipleship is obedience unto Christ. Notice how Mark tells us in verse 12 that after Jesus gave him all these instructions, he uses the word so, as a consequence, so they went out, they obeyed. We know we're being disciples in a biblical way when we see a growing pattern of obedience to Christ in our lives. And what did they do in obedience? They proclaimed the word of Christ. And what is the content of this proclamation? Mark tells us they preached a message of repentance. Now, this may sound familiar to you, and that's because we saw that this was the contents of Jesus' message back in his first sermon in chapter 1. Mark 1, 14, 15, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And what is this gospel? Here it is. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe the gospel. No wonder Jesus prepared them for rejection. Friends, the message of the gospel is a message that the world does not like. It involves change and change where we most resist. In the mind, in the heart, internal change. The word repentance comes from the Greek metanoia, which is a change of mind. The gospel messages introduces a change of mind to the thinking of the natural man. Repentance is not native to our hearts and our souls. Notice that Jesus' instructions assume that every encounter the apostles would have would necessarily be gospel encounters. Every house they enter, they must proclaim the message of repentance. Jesus' strategy is in complete agreement with the theology of the Bible. Men are born in sin apart from their creation, 
with nothing good to offer God with a deep need for repentance. Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from the heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And here's what David tells us. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Who needs repentance? Every man. Romans 3.23, for all, here's that word again, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is born loving Jesus or accepting his message. Man must hear the gospel, repent, and believe. Men must be changed from the inside. Christians are not made based on behavior modification, but on the transformation of the heart. And this transformation is only possible through the preaching of the gospel. So Jesus tells his disciples, go proclaim the gospel. Friend, I wonder if you need to be transformed by the gospel today. Is it true the gospel rightly accuses us of sin against God? Yes. God created us. God gave us life. He sustains us every day. Mere fact that you are here this morning is an evidence of His blessing and grace in your life. The fact that you are hearing the truthful and loving message of the gospel is proof of His love for you and His desire for you to come unto Him for salvation. And yet, in light of all of these, we choose to love and serve ourselves day in and they out instead of God. The sinful rejection of the one true God comes with a righteous consequence, a righteous condemnation, eternity apart from God. Judgment is what we deserve. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to earth. His Son, in every way, like Him, perfect, holy, but He also became like us, not in our sinful nature or sinful practices, but He became weak, frail. Jesus, the Son of God, lived under the same conditions we lived, but in every way we failed, He succeeded. Jesus lived a sinless life. From the moment He was conceived, the moment he took his final breath on the cross and cried out, it is finished. And yet, he died as a sinner, condemned. This is the irony of the cross. The one who never deserved to die, died in the place of everyone who's ever deserved his death. The death of Christ on the cross was a death of substitution. He did not die the death that he earned or he deserved, 
No, friend, it is the death that you earned and you deserved and I earned and I deserved. He took on himself the penalty that we've acquired. And we looked, and when we look at his cross, and we believe that he died for us, the great exchange takes place. He takes on himself our sins, and we receive from him his perfect obedience. Friend, this is the friends, this is the hope of the gospel. Hell should be our eternal address. But if we repent and trust in Christ, our final destination moves from heaven from hell to heaven, from condemnation to justification. And friends, his death on the cross is your only hope in this life. Today, we observe the Lord's Supper, where we're reminded of this, of his death, where we're reminded his body was crushed. For our body, where we're reminded that his blood was spilled for us. So I want to invite at this moment that the deacons would come forward as we prepare our hearts for the observance of the Lord's Supper.